Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the gift and blessing of another day of life, another day to find our hope in you, to find our purpose in you, to find our life in you. Thank you, Lord God, for drawing us here today. Lord, for bringing us into this sanctuary where we can find peace in you and encouragement and strength to face the days ahead. We pray, Lord God, for those who are uh, being faced with challenges because of the fires. We pray particularly that you would watch over those who are fighting those fires and those who are seeking to care for those who are fighting them and those who have had life or property taken from them through them. And we pray, Lord God, that you would extinguish those fires and protect, protect the people. Lord God, and we pray that you would pour out your mercy upon us, that you would give us hearts and minds to see the needs and um, the hurting of the world around us, Lord, and to extend our hands in love and in grace. Lord, speak to us today. Speak to us through your scriptures. Uh, speak, Lord God, through this message that I prepared, Lord. We pray that you would use these words uh, to draw us close to you and to fill us all with your word that we might be ambassadors and proclaimers of your good news. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. It is so splendid to see you all on this lovely Sunday morning. Now I'm going to share with you a little story from when I was a kid. This story happened my first time in kindergarten. If you know me, you know I did kindergarten a couple times just because I loved it. And it was at a school called Nevada City Elementary School, and this happened at the playground, which was down the hill from the school right next to the courthouse. And it was, the site of the event was the Monkey Bar Arch. There was this like monkey bar rainbow arch. I think it was, it could have even been like two arches that met each other or even like a geodesic dome of monkey bars too. I don't really know exactly what it was, but I had climbed up on the top of that thing and I had seen other kids doing this, but when they would get to the top, they would hook their feet underneath one of the bars and another bar they'd keep behind their knees and then they'd slip down through the bars and hang upside down like they're a vampire bat or something, right? And I thought that looked so cool and they'd all say like, I'm Batman, I'm Batman. Uh, and I thought, man, that looks like a lot of fun. So I climbed myself up to the top of those bars and I wove my feet under the bar and let myself slowly fall down over the bar that I was sitting on and hung there upside down and thought, I am cool. I am cool, I'm doing this. I'm doing what the big kids are doing. And for about half a second, it was cool. And then the blood started to rush to my head and I thought, all right, I'm ready to get back up. And so I reached, and I reached, and I tried the other side and I reached, but no luck. I couldn't reach the bars. I was stuck. I was stuck. I contemplated other ways of exit. Maybe like the equivalent of like pulling your your emergency chute, like by letting my ankles fold out and maybe just falling on my head because I figured that would be fine. I mean, you know, like that's a good place for me to land. But no, I couldn't even do that. The weight of my own body had trapped my legs there under that bar and I was completely and absolutely stuck. 
At that moment, I looked up and I saw a sole turkey vulture circling above, <laughs> right? I had visions in my head of just being someday them finding a skeleton of a young boy hanging there in the playground, you know, maybe a little stone or plaque memorializing me later. Here lies Seth, abandoned on the monkey bars. Right? He lived a noble life. There I was, completely trapped. And trapped by my own doing as well. Nobody had forced me on the monkey bars. Nobody had held my ankles underneath that bar and pushed me down. No, I had done it on my own. And I couldn't get myself out. I was stuck. Now, the story of Absalom from today in our Old Testament has a similar situation to that. It doesn't take place on the playground, and it's not so benign a story. But it is a story of tragedy, of failed potential. A story of a person stuck by their own actions. It's a story of betrayal and destruction as well. I didn't get any of that in my story, though. thank goodness. And it's really, the story of Absalom is a story that is so seedy that it's not really fit for church use, which makes it absolutely perfect for church, right? <laughs> but what better place to speak of it? Because the story of Absalom is our story. So without further ado, I bring you this little morsel of the fallen human condition. And as you'll no doubt remember from the readings last week, we had the reading about David and Bathsheba, right? And so remember Bathsheba had been bathing on the roof. It's so helpful that it's in her name, right? Bathsheba, bathing, taking a bath. And so there she is on the roof and David falls for her, has her brought over to his palace. She becomes pregnant. David freaks out because he knows she's married to one of his soldiers, one of his really inner circle of soldiers, and so he tries to make it right. Doesn't he? No, he doesn't. He tries to trick Uriah to come back, and maybe he'll have relations with her so that nobody will know. It'll cover up everything. And then when that fails, he does the right thing. Right? No. No, he has him murdered on the field of battle. Um, It's horrible. It's a horrible story. And so one of the nasty results of this adulterous union was that the Lord says to David through the prophet Nathan in 1 Samuel chapter chapter 12, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And that's what we all want to hear, don't we? If this was spoken to us, right, those things that we do in private, those things we're ashamed of, we all want those to come into the light, don't we? to be presented and proclaimed before everybody else? Isn't that what you want? You're all pretty quiet right now. Are you just trying to not admit you do anything? Is that, yeah. No, nobody wants to have what happens or the thoughts or the actions of their life. Maybe it happened a long time ago. Nobody wants it on the front page of the paper, do they? No, not at all. But sure enough for David... His problems became writ large across his whole family. 
And there were problems and challenges and swords in David's own house. As you remember, David's oldest son, I'm not going to give you the whole family tree because it's, it's like a kudzu bush, right? I mean, it's just branches going everywhere. Uh, his oldest son, Amnon, rapes his sister, Tamar, and David doesn't really get involved. You know, let the kids work it out. That's kind of his model of parenting. Let the kids work it out. It's kind of, he's testing out free-range parenting, I think they call it these days, right? And remarkably, his kids do work it out. They do come up with a solution. And the solution is another one of his sons, Absalom, murders Amnon. Right? And that it solves it and wraps everything up very nicely, doesn't it? This is why it's helpful to get involved as parents at times, right? Because you really don't want your kids to murder each other. Right? I think that's a general like max, uh, like axiom of parenting, right? You don't want your kids to murder each other. And so you have to get involved. But David didn't. And now his family is torn because of his inaction. And so, needless to say, Absalom runs away to his mom's family's home in another kingdom because his mom's a princess, so he goes and hides in the king's household uh, in another kingdom. Eventually, Absalom is brought back in after the appropriate amount of time away for murder. I don't How long is that? How long do you have to stay away before you come back to your family for having murdered a brother? Years, yeah, you got it's like a couple of years, right? And several har- cycles of Hallmark cards and stuff before you can come back. But he is brought back in. And he is brought back in and he immensely and he immediately becomes immensely popular with the people. And there's one important reason he's very popular. Any guesses why? His hair. His hair. And Dick, you and I understand that, don't we? Right, his hair. Yeah, his hair. He is good looking and has great hair. And we've been choosing leaders because of their hair ever since then, right? Remarkably, for some reason, it's really not fair, but that is how, yeah, Amnon's hair. He is a good looking guy. He's got great hair. And what does a good looking guy with great hair need but a chariot? And so he gets himself a really nice chariot and he gets some pretty horses to pull that. And then that's not enough, right? If you're a good looking guy with a chariot, you need something to set you apart from all the other good looking guys with chariots. And so he hires 50 men to run in front of his chariot, right? That's to be his entourage, because this is what you need. Uh, so whenever Absalom was in the nightclub, everyone knew. Right? Because you could see his chariot, his 50, his 50 runners there with him. Everyone knew Absalom was there. He was in the best restaurants. He was all over town. Absalom really, in some ways, is the first reality star. Right? He was kind of like the Kardashians of his day. Right? He was, he became famous for being famous and doing over the top things. And this kept him always on the front page of the media. But Absalom realizes he wants more than just fame. He wants more than to be the guy with the best hair in Israel. Right? He wants to be known for something else. And so he begins to develop some elements of approachability and professionalism. He sets himself at the city gate, and when people come to see the king, his father, David, 
to get a judgment on their case, Absalom would meet them and tell them this, right? Because the city gate is where a lot of business happened. And so he would stop the people on their way in to see David, and he'd kind of hijack the conversation by saying, see, your claims are good and right. What does Absalom do with that statement to the people, to his relationship with those people? Yeah, he creates this like kind of approachability and this like, oh, these, this guy gets me. The king might not get me, but this man, this prince, he understands me. And look at that hair, <laughs> right? He understands me and my problems. He believes my problems are real and valid. He affirms me. And then he says, but there is no one deputed by the king to hear you. The king doesn't have a deputy to hear their case. Unfortunately, although I understand your claims and they are valid and they are important and they are right, the king hasn't set up a system to care for you. I'm so sorry. If only there were another way. And then later on, the passage tells us that he would say, if only I were judge in the land. Now, I don't know how Amnon would respond to that statement. Remember the brother who had been murdered by Absalom? Because I think when Absalom is judge, he doesn't always make the most rational decisions, does he? He doesn't always follow due process. He doesn't always listen to both sides of the case. Absalom, when he is judge, it seems to end in murder. And then he says, then all who had a suit or cause might come to me and I would give them justice. Oh, he would give them justice. And it would be Absalom's justice they would receive. And then he tells us, moreover, that whenever a man would come and try to kneel or bow before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and in this amazingly gentle and humble effort, lift them up to his level and embrace them and kiss them as peers would greet one another in that culture. Right? You see what Absalom's doing? He is really just trying to ingratiate himself into the people and make himself so approachable, so wonderful, so great. The answer to all their problems, the solution to all their political challenges. And the Bible tells us it works. It worked. It says, thus Absalom did to every Israelite who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel, stole their hearts. Now, four years later, Absalom carries out the fulfillment of his plan because not only does he want to steal their hearts, he wants to steal something else. He wants to steal the throne. And he does that when he declares himself king. And remarkably, most of the leaders and most of the military follow Absalom. In response, David tells his few loyal followers to run and hide. They have to get out of Jerusalem. And so David leaves Jerusalem weeping up the Mount of Olives. Absalom then takes everything that's David's, his concubines, his throne, his wealth, his city, he takes it all. And then Absalom, in fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy, uh, has relations with the concubines on the roof of the palace, thus fulfilling the prophecy. I imagine that was scandalous at the time, right? And today, wouldn't it be? 
Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine? That is just, then this is what Absalom does. He takes everything that's David and says, it's all mine. It's all mine. And I'm the new king in town. Now, Absalom, after getting counsel, musters an army to go after his dad, David, and to kill him and his supporters. Because not only does he want the throne, he wants to secure it. And in order to secure it, he needs to get rid of the previous king. So David can never come back and take the throne. And remember, Absalom's M.O. is to kill. David, though, for his part, knowing that his own son is coming out against him, tells his men as they go out to battle to deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Deal gently with him. Ultimately, the army of David is victorious, but there's one moment that defines the battle. Absalom is riding his mule and he encounters some of David's soldiers and something happens. We don't know if he rides away or rides towards them, but he gets his head stuck in an oak tree. We're not entirely sure. Many people think it's his hair that gets stuck there, right? Those long locks. And this is why Edna Mode in The Incredibles tells them no capes on superhero uniforms because they get tangled. So if you're going to be usurper to the throne, no long hair. Listen to your mother, cut your hair. It could be that he was stuck in the tree just because of his fat head as well, because those can get stuck in trees. But there he is, defenseless, caught by his hair, his head, by something in this tree, hanging there. His mule rides on past him, leaves him alone, with him kicking his legs in the air, trying to free himself, defenseless. The scriptures tell us he is caught between heaven and earth, caught hanging there as the soldiers of David close in around him. And denying the order of David, they kill him. They kill him. So the ultimate result is that the battle is David's. His men were successful, but David is racked with guilt and cries out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Despite Absalom's betrayal, despite his violence, despite his murderous spirit, despite it all, David loves him still and would rather die than see his own son die. This is a crazy story, right? This is a a page turner. And there are more twists and turns to it that I couldn't share with you today. There's a ton more depth to it. Read it. Read this story. Dig into it because it is our story. But in this story, we're not the King David cast off our throne and trying to get it back. Instead, I believe we're Absalom, usurpers, violent, sneaky, lustful, prideful, vain, conniving, power-hungry, ultimately helpless. We are him. The result of our failure, the result of our sin, is that we find ourselves stuck with our heads in the branches of the tree, Unable to free ourselves, entrapped by our own sins and its consequence. Like Absalom, we deserve judgment. But then God does the most remarkable thing. 
Instead of just lamenting our demise, he takes our place. He fulfills that yearning of David and puts himself on the tree and is pierced for our transgressions. And the result of this is that you and I are made clean and transformed by his love. The story of Absalom is our story. Story of failure. Story of sin. But Jesus takes our story and changes it from a tragedy to a victory. When I hung from that monkey bar arch as a young boy, I was completely stuck. I could not free myself. And I had gotten myself in that predicament without anyone else's encouragement. I needed help. And I needed it quickly. And so I cried out for help. I did the only thing I could do. I started to scream out, help, help, help. And a sweet girl ran over to me and lifted me up and freed me and put me on the ground. I can't forget the relief that I felt having been freed, having been put on the ground again knowing that I was not going to die up there on those monkey bars, that I was going to live to play another day. That freedom, that release, that being restored to how things ought to be again was such a phenomenal feeling, it still sticks with me. That same relief can be ours today. This relief is ours. If it's our first time to turn to Jesus and put our faith in him, Or if it's the millionth time we've cried out to the Lord, we can experience this relief and this freedom. We can have our feet put back on the ground. And we can be delivered from the predicament we had put ourselves in. And it is to this Lord, the Savior who took our place and offered us his freedom in exchange, that we cry out for help today and ask him to deliver us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for being the God who delivers, the God who sets free, the God who rescues. Thank you for being the God who took our place of judgment and offered us his righteousness. Lord God, you saw us stuck in our sin, and you did not just point or stare or mock us, Lord God. But you came and took that place for us and were mocked and scorned and pierced for our transgressions. Lord, help us to receive your salvation from you. Help us to receive your mercy from you and help us to give you praise for the good gift you have given us. Lord God, we might have received salvation many, many years ago. But each and every day we find ourselves in a predicament we have often put ourselves in, through our own inaction or through our actions. Lord God, we pray, we pray that you would speak into these moments of terror, these moments of fear or anxiety or pain. Lord, help us as we find ourselves caught between heaven and earth. Speak into our lives and give us your peace and your restoration. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to live in this world with gracious hearts, 
being gentle with others when they find themselves stuck as well. And may we be willing to come and to help to free them, to offer them life in you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.